This is Mission.org. Marketing versus sales. It's an age-old dilemma. In this episode of Marketing Trends, we talk to Sean Shepard, partner at GrowthX and co-founder of the GrowthX Academy. We pitted a sales expert against Lauren Baccarello, our co-host, to talk about the sometimes growing divide between sales and marketing and figure if we can find a way to bridge that gap. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm here with my co-host, Lauren Vaccarella. What's up? Hi. So excited to have Marketing Trends today. It's really exciting to be talking about one particular marketing trend, sales marketing alignment. So we thought we should bring in a sales guy. Or lack be, thereof. Yeah, touche. <laughs> to be the yin to Lauren's yang and talk about this seeming divide between sales and marketing. So we have Sean Shepard. Sean, what's going on? How are you, Ian? Good to see you as always, Lauren. Great to see you. Thank you for coming into the lion's den. Thanks for having me. So you can already feel the tension between marketing and sales. They're actually sitting on opposite <laughs> sides of the table. Uh, <laughs> I was joking that we should have a blog called Both Sides of the Table, and then we could talk about it, but I think that's already taken. <laughs> <laughs> between two ferns. How about that? Oh, yeah. There you go. There's a name. So... Hey. See, well, who says I can't be in marketing? Come on. Completely be in marketing. You mean anybody can, anybody can do marketing, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Anybody can sell. It's not hard. <laughs> it's coin operated, right? Yeah. Oh, there it is. <laughs> so we have this topic that kind of always ends up being, I think, a marketing topic because ultimately we got to give leads to sales. And then it becomes a sales topic because they're saying, hey, where are all the leads? And I think we wanted to dispel some of the myths around sales marketing alignment and why it's it should be, first of all, you're on the same team. So obviously it should not exist in the first place, number one. And number two, like scapegoating and blaming doesn't actually do anyone any service. And you know, I would say that there is a percentage of each marketer that should be thinking about sales all the time and vice versa. Lauren, let's start with you. How do you how have you viewed sales marketing alignment throughout your career? When I think about marketers and sort of marketers' skill sets, a lot of marketers are on the the product marketing side. You're setting vision, you're setting go to market strategy, and you'll have marketers on the brand side, which uh, a lot of brand marketers often get referred to by salespeople as the arts and crafts team. And then um, you sort of have the the demand gen side, uh, which is focused really heavily on leads, pipeline, ARR, knowing the sales side of the business. And the majority of my career has been on the demand gen performance side where we don't exist without sales. Everything we do is to fuel sales, funnel sales, and help really help close deals. And what's built really productive relationships in that is when marketing and sales come together as a really deep partnership of what can we do, how do we have shared goals, and ultimately, we're both accountable for business growth. So Sean, you have built sales teams 
that have fostered wonderful relationships with with marketing leaders. But how did you kind of position this to your marketing counterpart and also like internally with your teams? Well, I think Lauren actually hit the nail on the head. Uh, as an entrepreneur, founder, selling founder, you know, first early early stage seller, <clears throat> you need a marketing team that that's operationalized in support of of learning and converting deals. So to Lauren's point, the mindset has to be my customer is the sales team. And conversely, you have to teach the sales team to love and respect the marketing team and then create this functional feedback loop between both sides that's a pursuit of one simple thing, and that is truth. Um, what's working? What isn't? How does it work? What can we do better this time? There needs to be an iterative, regular feedback loop. We call it you know, creating a functional learning organization that's solely in pursuit of that truth, embracing it, and not casting blame to anyone on anything other than just saying, I love to learn, give me the feedback so we can find profitability. And when you do that, I, you have great relationships between marketing and sales teams. Where I see it go funky is when she talks about the branding teams, because they're, again, they're not necessarily tied to revenue in the same way. And, and there's not a direct relationship between the handoff of a lead to a salesperson in the same way. They often, and also I think as part of that is they don't, they don't interact as much. Yeah. And and then you typically also see that in more mature organizations. So context matters, your stage relevance matters as well. Completely. And the branding team ha not being as connected with the sales organization. What I've seen in a lot of organizations of, if you were too heavy brand too early on, that often has the effect of causing this divide between sales and marketing. Because if you are an early stage company, you're working on building who you are, you're working on building revenue so you can stay as a business. And then you have marketing leaders coming in saying, let me talk to you about the impactful long-term, but also seemingly warm and fuzzy pieces of this is why our mission statement is so important. This is why our color palette, our look and feel, this is why all these pieces are so important. It's great to have, but if you are thinking about how am I gonna make payroll next week, no one's going to care about that, <laughs> right. about that part. The flip side is the brand team in a lot of ways is thinking of the long, long, long term. And you have companies like Salesforce who have built such, such a strong brand and are so recognizable but if they did that when they were, you know, a million dollars in revenue and building everything up, it would be much less effective where they are today, where having a bigger and bigger brand helps make it easier for sales at the stage they're at today. Yeah. And I, I, I remember the million dollar a year Salesforce, you know, organization when Aaron Ross was running Inside Sales, mm -hmm. and who's now famous for writing Predictable Revenue, which is all about, he calls sales development, but I've always said it's a marketing function. Mm -hmm. Because what is sales development other than identifying, targeting, and attracting interest and then qualifying that interest and then handing it off to a sales team? And you have to have that direct handoff of that relationship for that for that to work well. But that's a really fascinating insight because I think a lot of people, a lot of sales organizations would not want to cede control of that type of lead gen, right? Like I, I totally agree with you. I've always thought that of like these, you know, these outbound reps that are doing all this stuff. I'm like, that's not a salesperson. It no. Never no. has been. And that's no. what's so funny about it is like, why are we confusing those two things? It's like you're driving qualified lead gen. Isn't that marketing function? Yeah, I think a, a, a 
another Growth X Academy mentor, dear friend of all of ours, Ralph Barcy, would say, and, and he's the global head of sales development at ServiceNow, and he's got 250, maybe 300 SDRs around the world. He's got a massive organization. And he's he's always says that the, the two things he's responsible for, and I think this will answer your question about where the confusion lies with sales, is revenue pipeline and talent pipeline. Mm-hmm. And he's not developing talent to go into the marketing organization. He's developing talent to be advanced into account executive and sales roles. So that from that standpoint, totally makes sense. But in terms of, well, it's... It, it's not that simple, especially when you're thinking about things at scale in a B2B environment where you're doing outbound, you know, email, omni-channel stuff to drive inbound, whether it's, I think where probably people kind of draw the line a lot of times is if you got to pick up the phone and talk to a human. I think that's really, and, and sales development used to do that. <laughs> I don't know if it does it as much as it used to uh, because- I've seen back, call logs not you, nearly as much as they should. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you and I have talked yeah. a lot about how technology and screens and the crutch as and while it's made us more interpersonal, it's made us less more interconnected. It's made us less interpersonal, and people rely way too much on on that function. Well, and I think it's driven so much to events now because we have stages and because we use CRMs and all this stuff. Of like, it goes to oh, this is like the meeting where we're gonna have the are we a fit conversation and like mm-hmm. whatever. So it's all kind of set out as a, as a playbook for those people. So they're saying like, well, once I get this person on the phone, and then you realize like. It's a pretty good metric of how healthy your relationship is with your prospect or customer of like how much you're talking Mm -hmm. or like how efficient those conversations are. And what you're talking about. I think one of the most important things, I'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail, but Lauren and I no agree on this is marketing gets its its messaging from from sales, Mm -hmm. right? You know, sales is the one that's having the deeper conversations, collecting deeper insights and great marketers understand that and will do whatever they can to be a part of that process so that they can extract messaging that helps them get more leads and convert more deals for for sales teams. Completely, and it's getting that, to the, what you said earlier, it's getting that feedback loop. And what I've seen happen in marketing in so many different companies is you'll come up with messaging and this will be, this is who our company is, this is what the product is, these are the main selling points. But because marketers aren't, customer facing enough and don't get that feedback from whether it's sales or the customer success organization, it is the product messaging that sits in an ivory tower. So then that starts to build that gap between sales and marketing because you have sellers saying, all of this messaging is a bunch of crap. It doesn't work. You know what? The leads don't really work. The messaging doesn't work. Marketing isn't doing their job. Yep. And a lot of times it's because there's this communications divide between sales and marketing where it's there is something to be said, honestly, about marketers once a quarter shadowing an SDR team. Totally. And saying half a day, once a quarter, if you are in a demand gen function or a product marketing function, minimum half day, once a quarter, you need to sit with the SDRs. And as a sales leader, or let's say just a C-suite leader that's over sales and marketing, set a policy of we do not speak ill of, of marketing. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, nothing drives me crazier than a salesperson says, this lead sucks. Because that's just learned helplessness, number yes. one. And number two, you're assigning blame and intent to somebody else that you've never even communicated with about any of this stuff. And if you want to solve the problem, get them in a room and talk it out. It's no different than two kids, siblings just arguing, and then you've got to sit your kids down. I've got a 16-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son. And if one of them talks ill about the other when they're not in the room, I'm like, no, that's enough. Come here, sit down. 
you're going to sit down with your sister and you two are going to talk about this and I'm not leaving the room until it's resolved. And you have to do the same thing, uh, at least I think, set that tone because it's really easy for sales teams. Like it's an emotional job, right? I mean, sales is hard. You're constantly dealing with rejection and the voices in your own head that will take you down these negative paths. And marketing's doing the best they can with what they have where they are. And if you don't give them visibility and insights and feedback, then it's your own fault. It's not theirs. You know, I wanted to touch on the messaging piece because I think that's really an interesting insight with you can test both. Like Mm -hmm. that's what's so exciting is you can get the feedback from the SDR saying, hey, we need to be saying this, we need to be saying this. And it's, you take that feedback, you bring it in, you split test your messaging that you made and their messaging. And then when you go back to the person, when they say, oh, well, this isn't working, it's like, hey, sister, this is your copy. You're the, yep. one, who, you're the one who said that this is what's coming from the customers. Like, that's not a bad thing. It's just, we're learning. Like, this is what the market is telling us. Have you seen people kind of like split test that before or, or do things like that? Not as formally, but having a, this is the set of messaging we're thinking about using. We're releasing this new product. Give your top SDRs, this is the pitch points. Can you go and see how well this resonates? Get their sort of frontline feedback, but then also sit with them and sort of listen to it at the same time. So something that I've seen sort of shadowing SDRs, and I've done this literally at every phase of my career of just sometimes sit down and listen is take everything with a grain of salt. And I remember a few years ago, I was uh, sitting with SDRs in in Austin and didn't realize how new some of them were and saying, you know what, based on this call and this information, the context not interested. And it was actually, here's three things that you missed based on the contact record and the lead record. This makes more sense as an angle based on the information that I see about them. I've also spent more years with this cus- this type of customer and providing those little bits of insights. So if you just take their feedback exactly as is, you're assuming they know absolutely everything. Sitting there, you can either course correct if they miss something or it's sometimes easier for you to interpret. They actually, this isn't working and now I can think of a quick fix on the fly and see if I can give it to the SDR and then sort of real-time adjust messaging. Do you think that as a salesperson, as a sales leader, how many sales leaders do you think are out there that are collecting all of that feedback and then saying like, here to marketing? Like this is this is the, we have heard these 20 things come up over and over and over again. Here you go. I mean, what and what type of like reaction do you get from things like that? If the number were nine in 10 were doing it, we'd still be one short of what we should be doing. Yeah. So when I talk about creating a functional learning organization, Lauren exactly described it. She said, yes, we do these things, but not quite as formally. And I've, I I know it could be done more formally, especially with new product messaging to a new market or to a new segment or to a new persona. Every time you should set up some sort of functional action plan where marketing and sales are working in concert to rapidly iterate on messaging. The other thing I see that, that always... I find curious because I don't know how, I really don't have the data points, but I'm, I'm sure somebody does. You see, I don't call them rogue SDRs, but everybody's running their own playbook. Yes. Totally. Yeah. That's me, by the way. That was me. <laughs> that's me my whole career. Right. I never uh, play by the playbook. No, no, but that's, it, look, it, it, and that's why you're an entrepreneur. And I get that, right? Because I'm an entrepreneur too. And my first sales job, when I was supposed to be doing 110 cold calls a day and four hours of talk time, I wasn't doing any of that. I was reading quarterly reports and 
cues and reading CEO interviews, trying to figure out what they cared about and then contacting them and having that conversation. Literally me too. And <laughs> oh, by the way, it worked. You know, I became one of the top reps in the organization very quickly and then eventually hired out by one of my customers. And then next, that was that was the end of my having a job. Uh, <laughs> kind of set stage in my life. But but 90% of the people are not that way. What are we learning from the, the, from the SDRs that are iterating effectively? You know, are we A-B testing and, and collecting the, the, the right, let's say, multivariate analysis around why did it work in this situation where it didn't work in this situation for this customer with this particular person at this time? And is that messaging that would resonate and, and apply in other, in other segments? I don't think people are taking a hard look at that. I think the way that, you know, and I don't know if they should or shouldn't, but yeah. uh, it's it's just an observation that I see in this age of you know outbound email as a and and LinkedIn as a as an outreach function. Actually, something that I think about, and I'd love to get your perspective on, Sean, is there's this. So I'm going to do one of my my favorite quotes as framing is um when I used to work at Salesforce, there was this Mark Benioff quote meme that sort of always stuck in my head, which was it's the sales team's job to look at the hill in front of them. It's the marketing team's job to look five hills ahead. It's the CEO's job to look 25 hills ahead. Mm -hmm. And I always sort of took that to heart of it's the sales team's job to figure out how to close deals, how to keep us alive today. It's marketing to look a little bit further ahead. Yeah. And I think a lot about whether it was Salesforce or Box or pretty much every company has a, I can close this deal today. If I am this type of company, I can close this deal today. If I use, if I am Salesforce, I can say I'm a CRM solution versus where we're going. If I'm Box, an easy sale is going to be cloud storage, which is absolutely not who they are, versus cloud content management. So you have this easy message that you could sell immediately. The sales team's super comfortable with it. Yeah. And then you have the longer, harder, this is where we're going, but we're not there yet. I always have trouble figuring out, so what should the balance be from the sales perspective? Should they be thinking about, you know what, that new messaging doesn't work because the old messaging, I can just do quick sales, or should I be thinking about the long term? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Hold That's on. really quick. I just wanted to jump in and say that you literally stole my exact question that I was going to ask. Uh, I was going to ask oh. both of you about like timelines and metrics of like, you know, sales is selling <laughs> this month or like AEs are selling this month, the VPO sales is selling this quarter, and marketing is selling this year, and, and then the CEO is selling five years from now. So literally told my, stole my exact question. And and I wanted to add one more thing onto this before you answer it, Sean, that what are the metrics associated with that stuff? Because I think that that's part of all of this is like, you are what you track and you are what shared metrics you track. So how do you position these short-term wins with that long-term, like, this is where we're going as a company. Are we just focusing on early adopters? How do we kind of like, are we splitting reps on different things? You know, how do you kind of run those experiments? Yeah. So we'll go back to what Lauren said initially uh, around Benioff. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. One way of saying it is, is that marketing is demand creation and sales is demand fulfillment. Now, that said, you always have to be innovating. You always have to be mm -hmm. iterating. In the, and the more your product develops and the more your customer's use of your product develops and the more their business changes, the more new problems are created that you can potentially solve for, the more you have to innovate and iterate around those things. So how do you organize for that? 
this is where the role of what we like to call the the renaissance rep or the commercialization leader or the market developer in an organization is is effective. This is that person that has market acumen and sales acumen who can work with marketing, sales, and product to initiate, test, and iterate on things that can potentially become scalable several hills into the future. But doing it based on having the functional experience and understanding of what it is to convert a sale and have experience at every step in the funnel with every metric that matters in order to measure that learning. Because a lot of this learning is offline. Mm -hmm. This is not online learning, right? Um, most of that data that you're collecting to iterate on messaging and, and, and pricing and positioning is coming through offline analog interactions, right? It's like what I call analog growth hacking. Yeah. So it's where you literally are sitting in a room with like three of us right now. Lauren's on the marketing team. I'm the renaissance rep. You're one of our existing customers who's got a different set of unique challenges that we're talking about solving for or has been an early adopter and a great provider of feedback to us in the past, honest, real feedback and provided the resources necessary for us to build a more whole and complete solution to solve for whatever your current challenges and issues are, right? So that makes you a wonderful candidate for these early discussions, because what we learned from you, we can scale. At least that's the that's the idea. So you've got to have a team that's just in a big company. You need to have a team that that's just their, that's their job. Their job is just product to market dynamic. Same product to a new market, new product to the same market, new product to a new market. And you've got a renaissance rep. You've got marketing. You've got product all working together in this functional learning loop, and they're Yes, five hills out in front. And the CEO is, yes, 25 hills out in front. Or always the CEO should be thinking three to five years out. What's happening today was already thought about three to five years ago. And yes, your VP of sales is thinking about things on a quarterly and annual annual basis. And marketing is, is supporting that sometimes in, I guess, broader timelines. But if you're not doing that, and you're not collecting that data from the sales team who's fulfilling on demand, that's when they're actually collecting real insights, them and customer success and or account management. I mean, they're really collecting the deep, deep insights. They should be. I think it's interesting around this idea of product launches that a lot of time marketers are this big sprint to a product launch and then it's like, it's out in the world. Go, 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 go. It's out in the world. And sales is like, what are you talking about? I've been I've been closing this person for seven months. It's supposed to happen now. And you just launched the product, yeah. product launch. And I think that it kind of creates this dynamic where sales is kind of like in the day-to-day -day trenches of working with the customer. And marketing has this time horizon of, I have a hard date that we need to hit. And I think that that creates some, some very different confusion because there's a ton of stress that leads up to the product launch for the marketers. And then it's like out in the world and they're like, we need freaking help doing this. Lauren, what have you seen of how to kind of like mediate that? And I, I do think product launches are really, really specific challenges. I had worked at a company that was very, very launch heavy, very, very launch focused, which is great. And you have sort of different ways of launching products. You can look at more Salesforce <coughs> methodology of quarterly or three times a year by annual releases that are seasonal. And then you have tons of companies that will do, that may still release that way, but will do these regular product launches. Product launches are great ways to keep the market paying attention, keep momentum and interest in your company, show innovation. 
But what people don't see on the other side is the chaos that product launches cause because the product organization now has to make the mad dash to make sure this product is done live customer ready. Have you had customers in the alpha and beta who's willing to speak on this? What do you have? What sort of data points do you have? Do you have quotes? Do you have references? Lining all of that up in advance. And then the really unsexy tactical things of, is sales actually trained to sell this? <laughs> yeah, totally. If, do they know it's coming? Do they know it's coming? Because if it's a secret product, if it's this really big product launch and it's a secret, you're like, well, we're now going to tell press. When are we going to tell? Mm-hmm. When are we going to tell the actual sellers? And how different of a sale is it? Yeah. Because the one of the biggest mistakes I see over and over and over again is taking new products that have a different sales and selling cycle and dynamic and giving them to sales forces, existing sales forces that already have a, a, a line of, mm-hmm. of products that aren't sold in the same way. And what it ends up doing is it hurts It hurts both new sales and existing yep. sales. It's like, oh, congrats. This requires a different C-level's approval. Yep. Like this is automatic. This has it to get signed off It might even require a different level of subject matter expertise, yep. Yep. technical acumen. I mean, there's a whole host of different things there that you see. And, and, and I think the biggest one is sales professionals that aren't used to taking a new product to market mm-hmm. almost invariably fail every time when you give them one. And they not just fail at the new one, they it, it hurts existing sales, kills momentum. And this is what kills sales organizations, kills revenue, and that's why people leave companies. And then kind of building on that, do you think the the personality type, the role, the skill set of sellers is changing or has to change because this concept of innovation is so important is for a company to feel innovative, for a SaaS business to survive, you have to be pushing new things out. Mm-hmm. But it does whipsaw uh, sellers, marketers, customer success people. Does the skill set of the seller have to change to be able to be this really flexible type yeah, of person? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were just talking about that earlier. You've got to have a growth mindset. You've got to be able to, to be an active listener and learner. Then you have to have, I think just razor sharp business acumen because it's not about the technology, it's the insights that you bring. Mm-hmm. What's going to separate us from from the bots selling for us or to us? It's me telling you as your customer, tell me something I don't know. Mm-hmm. Show me something that I haven't seen. Identify a blind spot for me that I'm not aware that I have. Those are the things that w- people want. Challenger, a corporate executive board who does the best work, I think, on tracking what enterprise buyers and sellers want. And Lauren, I think you and I have talked about this before. We look at this data a lot. Biggest frustrations they have from their customers. The number one frustration is is that they don't bring insights. They're not adding value the way in in a way that says, I don't have time to think about all of these things. I'm not seeing a lot of these things. I'm focused on, you know, the task in front of my face. I need you. Just like the uh, prior, the Benioff analogy, yeah. right? My job is to take the hill in front of me. If you're truly a, th- a thought-leading, value-added seller to me, I want you showing me what's five hills ahead. And it's the same thing. So yes, so the modern sales professional has to be an incredible problem solver. They have to be an incredible communicator. They have to have that mindset. They have to be a, an active learner. And they have to be a brilliant communicator and not just in you know, an email <laughs> or LinkedIn. And that whole set of skills is what's going to separate people with emotional intelligence from people with artificial intelligence. 
And then what do you think from a, a sales and marketing alignment perspective, what in this evolving world are the requirements of sales from a marketing team? Are they changing? What does sales need to be as effective as possible from the their marketing counterparts? I think this? they have to work more closely together than they ever have before. I think that, that you have to have that degree of paranoia that Andy Grove would always talk about. Mm -hmm. that, that is, I can't stop innovating and getting better. I constantly have to be improving my market, my message, my product the solutions around it, my delivery of that. And as a result, you have to create these functional teams that are just thinking only about only about those things and, and, and searching for patterns that can be scaled. So I think now more than ever that marketing and sales have to work more closely than, than ever before. I have another point of contention is- I love points of contention. Well, I think this is something that's now really, really interesting in the market where you have companies that have never had a self-serve product yeah. that have yes. launched one out. Like, so for example, Salesforce has Salesforce Essentials. We're a Salesforce Essentials customer. We never talked to a rep, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now we have one and it's great, but- um, Touchless conversion products in a high touch environment. Sure. Mm -hmm. So you're saying, okay, now the marketer is saying, hey, listen, we brought this person in, we closed them with like our copy with you know sales help and feedback and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, now it's going to, we're going to give that person a rep whose quote only job is to hammer them into submission until they upsell. leave them, until they, yeah, <laughs> until they upsell or, or get off the product. So it's like, who manages that, that number, right? Who manages that pipeline? Because ultimately, if they're in that marketing funnel and actually generating revenue on that marketing funnel, how should sales be touching that? The way you described it, it's a customer success function, which is fine. But I think like anything, you have to define what that sales cycle is, what the touch points are, what the customer journey is and the experience, measure all the stages and set up your criteria and do all the blah, blah, blah stuff. But the one thing we can't lose sight of, and, and I just wrote an article on this and I think you guys published it, why SaaS should be called service as a software instead of software as a service. Totally. In that the best and most effective sellers of software are service providers, the most successful entrepreneurs in our, in our, in the portfolio, in the GrowthX portfolio are people who have solved their own problem with software and then commercialized it for others because they deeply understand it. And there's no shame in that. And I know Lauren appreciates this, having such a storied SaaS career herself. We just assume that because it's self-service software that people are just going to start using it. Yep. yep. And, and you watch the same cycle happen with every high growth SaaS company. They get to a point where churn gets out of control because they've been so focused on acquisition that yeah. they don't pay any attention to their current customers and how they're using the product. And they're always trying to hit the recurring revenue licensing numbers that their VCs want them to. So they're trying to keep their service revenue and service costs down, and it actually hurts their long-term ability to grow. So when you're doing this with any new segment or sales complexity, you need to have that functional learning set up where you're very service oriented. You have to do all the things that don't scale so you can scale later. I mean, I can't agree with you more. And it's the, I have not read your article and now I desperately need to go read it. Um, <laughs> I have this theory right now, hypothesis. The way, the way SaaS companies are selling is starting to mimic the way on-premise was sold, which was you're locked in. Yeah. But the world has fundamentally changed and That's it is right. 
easier and easier for any customer to switch off of your product. And if mm -hmm. we don't stop focusing as a go-to-marketed organization on ARR and start focusing on customer lifetime value, a couple years out, our businesses are going to be falling apart and we need to get ahead of the problem before it is a problem. And what I've seen in self-service is there's pros and cons to self-service. And if you do it well, super, super interesting, especially if you have product where the cost to serve, the economics don't work out. But what you have a lot in self-service to the point you said earlier is we just assume they're going to sign up and they're going to use it. So it's this interesting place where marketing for the first time actually like is accountable for the, the sale, not the pipeline, not the yeah. one step removed, but for the actual dollar. And what I've seen in so many organizations that have a self-serve solution, self-purchase, and then mm -hmm. sort of the rep purchase is the churn rates for all of the buy online self-service dramatically different mm -hmm. from versus a rep. And it could be 30 percentage points different. So you're bringing in all of these no-touch customers, yeah. but we're not doing anything to get them deployed, get yeah. them onboarded, get them finding value. So in three months, in 12 months, they just start bleeding out the door. And I do think in this sort of the role of sales and marketing, if marketing is in a place where marketing is like, great, you need to acquire the customer, you're going to say, own the web property, maybe you work with a product organization to close, allow them to purchase. It's great that marketing now has that actual 100% revenue accountability, but knowing how bad the churn is, they have to go a step further and say, great, you got the deal. You need to assume that let's say 30% of that goes away. So what are we going to do as marketers to think long-term customer lifetime value to not end at sale, but to say, how do I make sure this gets deployed? How do I mm -hmm. make sure they get onboarded? How do I make sure they find value? And a lot of that may be automating some of what your customer success organization has to do, has to do at scale. I agree. Two things about that. I, the second, the latter is it's specifically around low touch, low value products like that. Churn is absolutely going to be higher because we we invest less in it, number one. And number two, the customers invested less. So it's yep. easier for them to walk away because it's lower risk to them. But if, you, if you're being more strategic about what I'm doing is planting the seed with low touch, low lifetime value customers to convert them into larger customers yes. over time, you need to be more strategic about it. You actually need to make that investment up front. And the other thing I would say about it is what you what you mentioned that it's never been easier to leave leave your vendor. That's absolutely true. And it's only going to get easier, yep. which is why these companies are flaming out so quickly. We were talking earlier about even Jeff Bezos said openly to his shareholders the other day, I'm worried that Amazon won't be around in 30 years. And it's a trillion dollar market cap mm -hmm. right now. But really, what do they own and control? Very little. Yeah. And we can go to to another provider tomorrow if Amazon Prime now doesn't show up at my house with my with my cashew prebiotic almond milk in four hours <laughs> or less, which is a very Silicon Valley thing to order on Amazon Prime now. I, I was going to say, so you order that too? No. I, <laughs> I do love almond milk, though. I, I apologize. To it's them. really hard to milk an almond, though. Have you tried? I, every day. Um, so I have I have made my own almond milk. It, you know what? It's it's just easier to it's easier to buy your own. Just, I may have lived in California yeah, we for too long. Why we have a drought. It takes like <laughs> three million gallons to, uh, of water to create a one gallon of almond milk. It's so good. <laughs> but that's the age of applied technology. Yes. we're in that era now where the market has more power to decide who and what it wants to wants to order from than ever before. 
It might be easy to get out of a product, but it's not easy to get out of the studio because I have two more questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice transition. No, um, it's all right. It's 2.30 in the afternoon, so it's already full traffic in the valley. Oh, yeah. So. No, you're, you're, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere anyway. It's you're only good. not full traffic for 20 minutes yeah. a day. So. <laughs> so one of the things you were touching on with marketers owning that full pipeline, I think the biggest piece of consternation around sales marketing alignment comes down to compensation. Mm -hmm. I think that ultimately like it's the straw that stirs the um, witch's brew here of why people are like, you know, well, that person gets paid whatever, right? How is compensation going to change for marketers going forward? And how is it going to change on kind of like as we continue to reimagine where this line of sales marketing actually kind of fits in, whether it's and also with customer success too, because, you know, the renewal conversations of, I, I forget who the founder is, but there's somebody who says, we don't ring the bell on sales, we ring the bell on renewals. I love it. And it's true. And when you're talking about lifetime value, I mean, I think this is a separate aside here, but I think that a lot of the advantages that people have had in marketing over the past decade with like this like digital publishing was around the fact that they were focused on acquisition, not LTV. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, well, you know, it cost me 50 bucks to do whatever with, you know, a lot of these CPA deals and things like that. But the publishers are sitting there going, yeah, but what's your lifetime value, right? And they're saying, I don't know. And they don't. So when you look at that, when you look at the lifetime value of these customers and you look at how much value that marketing can drive, ultimately, how do we get more on the same page with some of this stuff from a compensation standpoint? Or are we kind of in a good place right now? I mean, I definitely think a couple of things. One, People do what you pay them to do. If you say, I'm going to pay you based on net new revenue, you will have a team that drives net new revenue come hell or high water. That revenue may churn in three months, but that's not their problem because they're paid for net new. If they are paid on renewal, that's what people will do. And they may sacrifice net new because they're focused on renewal. So I do think as SaaS continues to evolve, we need to think about how compensation strategies across all of go-to-market evolve. I've got a couple of interesting kind of anecdotes. One is a very sort of small microcosm. I uh, have a, a friend that works in, in customer success, and she was partnering a ton with the AE on this renewal, and the AE wasn't super involved, and she got a million-dollar upsell from this customer, which is incredible. And she and I are talking, and she was really excited about her $1,000 spiff. And she got a $1,000 spot bonus on that million-dollar upsell. And I sat there, and I was like, I'm not going to tell you how much I think the sales rep made on that. And and then I might have dropped a $200,000 number. (laughs) And she was like, please don't tell me that. I was like, congratulations on your $1,000 spot bonus. So you have that scenario where you have the, and this is probably an extreme where the customer success person does all of the work for this upsell versus it, but maybe it's not because at most organizations after the sale is complete, not everywhere, but the AE tends to say, thanks for playing. I've got my money. Mm -hmm. I am going to go continue to hunt and to do more. And it gets passed to the customer success rep or the account manager who is working on keeping the account healthy and keeping getting them to use the product and find value. So you have this dynamic of at renewal, who is responsible, who's accountable, and mm-hmm. with upsell, who who does that? And then another example that's much bigger that I, I think of is I got to spend some time 
with some of the sales leadership team from Culture Amp. And if you don't know Culture Amp, mm -hmm. they're yeah, no, great awesome, people. Great people, awesome technology. It's got a couple of academy students, alums are, that work there. Yeah. Nice. I yeah. I love their product, and it's a great way to figure out the health of your company and what's going on. They've got great benchmark data. So their compensation model is completely different. They don't have sales commissions. So their sellers are not commissioned. They pay their sellers a good salary. And then they're bonused on the on the organizational goals, right? Um, so they're bonused on organizational goals, and yeah. then there is a pool of money. So they would take the equivalent of commissions. It's a pool of money. And maybe for that quarter, it goes to the product person. And maybe for that quarter, some of that money goes to a marketer. And I I don't think it's voted, but where it's peer recognized. No, it's so they do calibrations every single quarter. And mm -hmm. based on where people are across the company and calibrations may dictate what your bonus is for that quarter. And the perspective from CultureAmp was, and from the sellers was, yes, I'm the person that closes the deal, but I can't take credit for all of this. If I mm -hmm. close a million dollar deal, I had this product manager in six times meeting with the customer, plus I had the sales engineer and the leads came from marketing and the brand team did all of this work prepping the market. Yes, I closed the deal, but I can't take credit and say this was 100% me. I wouldn't have been able to do it without this product manager and this marketer and this SE yeah, and all of these that's people. That's interesting. I, I, I think... I think there's two things about that. One is is they're still an early stage company. Yes. Early stage, you want to tie compensation to the organization, not totally. to the individual. Yeah. Yep. And you can uh, modify that over time. And the second thing I think is is how do you want to you know how do you want to organize these these roles and functions and how do you how do those speak to your core values as an organization too? Just your overall operating philosophy. And it sounds like, and I don't know for certain at Culture Amp, like I said, we do have some Academy alums there and Academy mentor who's a sales leader. I'd love to talk to him about this and understand what kind of behavior it's driving. Yes. Because Lauren's right, you know, how you pay people is going to drive their behavior. But uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to understand how that, how that would do it. I think that there is also just really, a, there's a meritocracy. And there's a competency hierarchy that exists, and we just have to be honest about it. The people who are most closely tied to converting the revenue make the most money because it's the hardest freaking thing to do. And there are people that want to be marketers and they're happy with that and are happy with the compensation that's associated with that. There are people that are customer success people that are happy with that and are happy with the compensation associated with that. So to Lauren's friend, I would say, if you want the 200K, you need to move into a sales role. There's nobody mm -hmm. stopping you from doing that but you. That said, there's a more fair way to do that based on the dynamic of, of who's involved and what role they play and what value they add. And it's not hard to figure that out. You just need to pay attention for a little while and see what patterns emerge. I, I think that the person who is building long-term value for the company who is thinking in terms of long-term value, I mean, I, I'm super biased on this stuff because I think like monthly quotas and quarterly quotas and all this sort of stuff, I totally understand. But I think that there is so much BS that goes into that stuff from both sales and marketing to drive to deadlines that like ultimately drive back to things like, how are we going to impress our shareholders for this quarter and things sure. that, got, that are... Yeah, that's the, just the economic reality of business, right? Yeah. And so I think that there's a lot of short-term thinking that goes into that stuff. But I think that there, there are going to be new ways, similar to what Aaron wrote with predictable revenue, there's going to be new ways in the future to look at how do we create long-term value and mm -hmm. that role of relation? I mean, back in the day, it was called a book of business, right? Yeah. I mean, let's let's simplify for a moment if we can. 
what Aaron did. Aaron wrote a book about how he learned to exploit the newest B2B marketing channel that was nascent and emerging. And if you look out throughout history of marketing and selling in business, the early winners in any market are those that learn how to exploit those channels before the people do. Mm -hmm. And now email has just become spam fest and it's and people, the response rates are nothing. And now you have to change. And I think that's the overarching message that we always try and talk about. I know Lauren does too, is, is you've got to be better than everybody else at what you do. Yep. And then you have to know your customer better than they know themselves. And those are the two things that, and then obviously you have to be able to connect with them around that. And those are the, the, the three things really that I think we have an obligation as professional marketers and sellers to just be, to me, that's table stakes. That's like the minimum bar requirement. Figure those things out, stay out in front of them, and you'll create that long-term value. I think the final piece that I would say about the variable compensation for marketers is that I think that there just has to be some type of variable compensation so that your cream can rise to the top. And that's like the biggest issue of all of this that I see. If you can't point to your rock star marketers in a way that is has a meritocracy, it's really hard to become an all-star. Well, then your instrumentation sucks. I mean, you're not tracking the right metrics. You don't know what's going on. And you can't show me how, if you can't show me how Lauren is contributing to my, to my revenue, then that's Lauren's fault. Right? Yeah. She's the one that's going to help instrument that funnel, build it, track it, measure it, and make sure that she is compensated for that. And I do think getting to a place and as organizations start to evolve, and I, I 100% agree with you, Sean, that the, the closing part is the hardest part of the yeah. sales cycle. That I Once upon a time, I worked in sales. I'm great top of the funnel. Mm-hmm. I'm great getting people interested choke on the clothes. It is not my <laughs> skill set. I have a, it's funny, I have a girlfriend of mine who's a marketing consultant and she and I were talking a couple of nights ago and I was like, I'm so good at networking for all these opportunities for board roles and I suck at closing them. <laughs> She's like, oh, I'm terrible at the networking part, but I can close anybody. And I was like, do you want to close everything for me? There you go. Good I can network strength and you can close, yeah. <laughs> but you're somehow going to get a bigger commission because you're the close. Um, <laughs> But I do think that the close needs to have the, there's just more skin in the game. And also yeah. sales compensation and their fixed comp is lower. Yes, because it is. Because your, your fixed comp is going to be lower, mm-hmm. but your variable is through the roof. And the thing of being an enterprise sales, an enterprise seller in so many ways, it's the dream of the million dollar, multi-million dollar year. Marketers aren't going to get that. Marketers are going to get typically, not at the beginning, but then a much higher fixed compensation, but eventually the variable goes away. And I do think- And the lifestyles are different. And the lifestyles are very, very different. The pressure levels are different. Yes. And the the prevailing wisdom has always been the sellers, the best sellers should make the most income. Yes. The best managers and leaders should create the most wealth. And that's where the equity component comes in. Completely. I would love to see a world where we then also have a whether it's a spot pool or something for say marketing for marketers or for customer success and the people that, or even for the product org, the people that aren't closing, but are the cream should rise to the top and the people that are creating as many opportunities as possible and are driving the most value and saying, if this is the overall marketing goal for pipeline or AR created or for mm-hmm. the cohort from last year, this is the renewal goal or whatever it is. If you hit this goal, here's this now pool of money. 
if you hit the goal and then either says everyone in marketing then gets a little yeah. bit extra or you say, actually, you know what? Ian is the person who drove 40% of this. So we're going to give him 40% of, of the pool and just having that little bit of extra incentive. And I remember years and years ago, I was running marketing at a startup and what we would do each quarter was here's the three hardest things we're going to do this quarter. We have a hundred things we need to do. Here's the three most important things we need to do this quarter. And mm-hmm. it might be launch a new website, go into a new territory, hit our number. If we do all three things, this is what we're going to get. Mm-hmm. And because it was a startup, it was, I think one time we did marketing prom and <laughs> we all went out, we got super dressed up and we went out to this really, really expensive dinner and went, if we do these three massive goals, I'm basically going to spend $5,000 to take all of us out. Mm-hmm. And that was enough of an incentive that everyone was really excited about that. So it wasn't, I need to give everyone this enormous amount of money, but that little bit extra to strive for, I think helped a lot. And where you start to breed discontent is where you have the CSM who might make a grand and the AE who might make 200. I don't think the CSM knew that's what sales compensation looked like, Right. but just figuring out where the how to make the difference between the two. I don't know if appropriate is the right word, but the right incentive. Yeah. So in non-VC-backed businesses, this is actually a lot simpler than, than yeah, I was just going to say. It. Yeah. So, you know, I've built and sold three companies and, and one of them was my own with no VC. So I had an open book profit sharing plan and it was the most effective thing I could have ever come up with. And I didn't devise it. I was advised to implement it. Because it also sort of supported the just the general philosophy that I had as a as a leader and an entrepreneur, which was just wanted this to be we're a family, the family all shares in this in in one way or, mm-hmm. or or another, and so everybody knew at the end of every month what top line revenue we did, what gross profit we did, and what net income we made, and every quarter a portion of the profits got shared and distributed to everybody based on their role and and uh, seniority level. And what it created was just a, really an honest and transparent environment where everybody was always motivated and tied to, to the success of the mm-hmm. uh, of the organization. And it's a lot, like I said, a lot easier to do in a in a sole proprietorship or an LLC than it is in a in a Delaware C corp that's backed by VCs that have a very particular set of metrics that they need to hit for their LPs and so on and so on. To finish beating this topic to death, I think I have one more thing. <laughs> so. I, the idea of like having a prime account owner and like co-prime that sell other products, I think is something really interesting where you have companies that literally split commissions between, you know, the primary account owner and a product offshoot or whatever. I think that there's a world where there's some type of marketing function that kind of fills that role, especially when you're looking at products that are being sold on the, just off the website or however it is you're selling products. And it kind of almost is similar to to channels. I think that there's something there that would be really interesting having kind of more of a fire team approach where you have the salesperson uh, with the marketer attached to them as more of a tactical role than than kind of traditional. I think there's something really interesting. I think you see that in some of the bigger consulting firms, the IBMs of the world can, can and do organize around that for what you would call named accounts. Mm-hmm. So in environments where you have named accounts or global accounts where the, the the account is so big, you've got one person or a team that's, you've got a team of individuals that are dedicated to working at different areas of that account. And you typically have one person who's sort of over the entire 
account. Then they'll organize a team in support of every aspect of where they create revenue and value. Yeah, and I think that if that if there were similar territories and things like that where you had the customer success, the marketer, and the AE working more like closely together on those specific things where if that deal closes, both people win. Again, it's not going to be the same size, but there is a monetary incentive to be great. And we can start to measure some of that stuff. Yeah. I see Um, some people playing with the pod structure around that. They're calling them pods. Oh, there you go. You've got, you know, three or four different people that are part of, of that. But again, typically for enterprise level deals and above. Yep. I see the same thing. Final, final question. We're ready. Give me your best. (laughs) (laughs) Sing Tao. Your best team building, sales marketing alignment, either idea that you have or thing that you've done in the past that has really brought both sides together. Well, the revenue sharing thing, as I mentioned before, profit sharing doesn't hurt, but I think team building, bonding experiences that are off off site are to me the most important things where people can really start to connect with each other because they have to trust each other. And I think that's where the biggest problem that exists with the whole sales marketing alignment thing is this lack of trust. And the lack of trust comes from the lack of knowledge and understanding and liking of each other. And once you get past all of that, it's it's like a team sport. I, I completely agree. It is easier to blame the idea of somebody than it is to blame the actual person. Once you, once you get to know the individual, it yeah. is really hard to say, well, it's marketing's fault and marketing didn't do this or sales yeah, like didn't you can't do this. Blame, you can, it's easy to blame capitalism because it's faceless and it's nameless, yes. right? Or it's easy to blame big government because you don't know the people. Or it's easy to call, blame corporate America or some big evil corporation because you don't know any of the people in it. But once you know the people and you have that relationship, and it's also once you know someone and if you go, you know what, that new messaging isn't quite working. Let me just pick up the phone and call Sean and say, something's not working about this. Like, I don't know why. Maybe I don't understand it. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. Can I give you some feedback? And it's so easy to do that and to Mm -hmm. think that's what you should do when you know someone. And even though on paper, you know, when you say sales and marketing alignment, this is what we do. We've got this feedback loop. If you don't know the person, you don't you were much less likely to do that. But when you have that relationship and it it's as simple as, you know, when you're doing the the sales offsite or, and we've done these sort of the quarterly or biannual all of sales gets together, invite the marketers yeah. and invite the marketers to happy hour and everyone mm-hmm. goes out and drinks together. And even if you don't go out, if you don't drink, you just go out and you spend that outside time together and you talk about each other's kids and your lives. And maybe you whinge a little bit about work but that's where you start to build that relationship. And if you have the foundation of here's our shared goals, here's our shared mission. As a culture, it is not acceptable to blame anybody. Mm-hmm. And by the way, now you know everybody and you genuinely start to build those relationships and connections, it breeds a much more positive environment. And I think she brought up something really awesome in there that triggered one of my basic life rules, which is never have a difficult conversation asynchronously. Yeah. Like if you have to call the marketer and give them feedback about messaging, you pick up the phone or you go see them in person. You do not send an email mm-hmm. and let them read between the lines of the email and get freaked out and ruin their day or vice versa. Yep. You know, email is not a weapon. Text is not a weapon, right? Have those difficult conversations live. And I think that for a lot of sales and marketers, you 
just straight up don't know what the other people do. And yes. you got to start to you got to start to do that stuff where it's like, hey, if Susie spent three all-nighters prepping for this product launch, we need to make sure that we share that with the sales organization so that they know what she's been doing or that we've been doing. And I think that part of that is, I forget who said it, but they're like, you need to be really thoughtful with how you make heroes within your company. Like what makes a hero? Because if that makes someone a hero, then the rest of the people in the organization are like, well, I know I need to do that. And not saying all-nighters makes you a hero, but on occasion, should. Uh, no, but showing your work is important. It, yes. There's a reason, there's a great story about how and why Starbucks designed its retail stores so that you can see the baristas working. Mm-hmm. Because all the research shows that if you can see them working for you, you will wait in line longer and you will pay more. Great last words. We'll leave it at that. So we were supposed to do 30 minutes and we did an hour. So Amazing. hopefully everyone's still listening. But uh, thanks so much for listening to Marketing Trends. Thanks to Sean. Thank you, Ian. Shout out to GrowthX. Woot woot. GrowthX.com, GXAcademy.com, and Lauren. Thank you. Another, another great episode. Indeed. See you next time. Sounds good. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster, and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.